You're listening to 3CR Radio. And Bear, Miracle, you're in your face on 3CR with James. On this week's show, we're chatting with Joe Ball from Switchboard and Rodney Croom from Just Equal. 3CR. While Switchboard provides much-needed support to the LGBTIQ community, and this week I spoke with their CEO, Joe Ball. Joe, tell us about the impacts on Switchboard's clients during the pandemic. Yeah, thanks for the question, James. I think, you know, one of the things that we've been noticing is that those people who are already feeling anxious and depressed prior to COVID-19, that this situation has only exacerbated those conditions for people. So thinking about the work that happens over our two telephone lines, the Q Life Service and our family violence with respect to helpline, you know, the people there, the you know, a lot of the people are calling in crisis um, and are you know are at you know struggle times in their life, and you know this period um, you know has exacerbated those conditions for people. If people were already having a hard time um, through family violence, then the social isolation caused by this you know has really exacerbated that. You know, leaving you know making people feel like they have less time to themselves, um, perhaps you know, more time in an abusive relationship, um, less ability to get independence. And for those, you know, calling um, in suicidal crisis or, you know, mental health crisis, the experiences of anxiety that this pandemic has caused has just really exacerbated that. And we've, and that's the kind of stuff we've seen on the phones. And then in our other service, Out and About, which is a service for older people, of course, we've had huge concerns for the um, now over 52 people that we support in that service. And, you know, like what it's meant for the people that we visit is that we haven't been able to physically visit them for months now on end um, since, since March. And we're only now just starting to transition to some visits to some people um, under very specific conditions. So what we've been hearing from the people that we visit is that although it's fantastic that people are getting phone calls and um, some people who can manage the technology or have the technology around Skype and um, they, they have been enjoying that process and glad that people are contacting them, but, you know, nothing replaces a physical visit. Um, and so people have been telling us that although they're glad that we've, we've made the precautions of keeping, keeping people safe, and in some cases we, those precautions, you know, have been mandated by the aged care facilities that people live in, um, and then we've been closely abiding by those conditions you know, people are grateful that we've done that, but there, you know, there's also definitely a number of people have raised to us the the mental health concerns that come with, you know, suddenly losing that physical um, sitting down with someone, having a cup of tea, going to a cafe that we provide. What can governments do to support you better to enable you to give the clients the support that they need during this dreadful time? You know, as I'm sure the listeners will appreciate, is that there was a huge challenge for us. You know, we have on one of our phone lines, it's completely volunteer-driven, which is the QLife phone number, and that was we had 90 volunteers from across the country who, um, you know, not, sorry, 90 volunteers in Victoria um, taking calls from across the country. And, 
you know, those 90 people, you know, fill up our shifts, our um, daily shifts of running the service. And when COVID-19 hit, we couldn't have 90 people from across Melbourne travelling in to a phone, a very enclosed phone room um, and, and, and continuing that work. So what we've had to do within a week, and it was very, it was really felt like free fall at the time, from a week we had to, you know, really change the complete way that we operated and we've transitioned from a volunteer-run key life service to a paid staff-run service. And that was an incredible, um, it was a very hard thing, I guess, um, logistically, but also um, emotionally. I mean, the volunteers are the lifeblood of our organisation and for 29 years the service has been run by volunteers only. And we needed, and, and some of those volunteers have become the paid staff, uh, but it was you know, what we had to do was greatly reduce the number of people running the service. We just couldn't have that mass of people um, co-mingling in a, in a confined space. And also that, you know, in our community, we have conditions that make people more vulnerable to COVID-19, for example, HIV. Um, so we had a higher level of risk, I guess, around exposing people in our service who are volunteering to COVID-19 and also that people, you know, to have to travel to shift, they'd have to travel on public transport and they'd have to be exposed publicly. So it was just, it was too much risk. So we we, re- we had to reduce the cohort of people that were doing the work. And, it, you know, for us as a service, that was like there was no compensation um, from government to do that. There was a very small grant um, from the Victorian government to help us around some of the technological challenges and we're really appreciative of that. But to date, the amount that it's costing to pay for paid staff to do that work, you know, is not compensated. So we would like, um, there's been a tiny bit from the, from, uh, from the federal government to the general QLife service, but, you know, we have a huge gap um, in the amount that we've received in to provide the service and the, and, and the amount that's needed, you know, and, and, and some, you know, and we're looking at, we're going into, you know, we're relying on donations to cover it. We're having to repurpose some other grants into this money, like get permission to repurpose some grant money into this, and it's completely undesirable. And we were, and you know, we're only doing it because we have to do it. So what we'd like to see from government, I guess, is a, is is for them to to bridge that gap um, in the service money. Um, and you know, we are waiting on a number of of things that might, you know, we we made these petitions to uh, the Victorian government and the national government about sort of filling filling that gap. And, and for us at Switchboard is absolutely, we are, go, you know, it is, we have a no compromise approach to delivering the service. Um, we are going to continue the service. Um, but for us, it's just been this absolute challenge of a sort of um, a, a week by week, by week kind of thing about, you know, where are we getting the next bundle of money to pay the paid staff? And, you know, and then we've really got to continue that right up until November, we believe at this point. And we might transition some volunteers back into the phone and do that over time. Um, but, but us, you know, aside from the essential nature of our service, which we are recognised by the Victorian government as essential as an essential service, apart from the essentialness of it, we also have a huge commitment to the health and well-being of our volunteers, and we have to manage both of those conflicting um, demands. So that's. That's a big story, um, and um, we, and, and um, unfortunately, we have to talk about it publicly because we need, you know, the support um, to to be able, you know, of the community to be able to cover that that gap. And and we have had some people during the end of financial year donations who have made like um, d- 
donations within their ability to cover, to help us uh, cover the cost during this time, and we're really appreciative of that and people who've made those those donations. And um, the other thing is that we've also had donations for the out and about service, the older people service I was talking about before. Um, community has been fantastic. We had to raise some money in March because we wanted to send out care packages to all the older people that we support in our program because it was, you know, really, as you'll remember back in March, the big pressing issue was, you know, toilet paper, hand sanitizer and soap. And so we needed to send those care packages out to people in our community who were who really did not need to be out there battling for toilet paper, you know, older people, uh, people with disabilities, um, you know, did not need to be out um, risking their exposure to COVID-19 battling for those essential products. So we sent out care packages that included those. Um, we also sent out some nice things within people's dietary requirements like chocolates or lollies to also say um, that we cared. And we sent out information cards to all the people we support because we know that, a, you know, a number of the people that we support in the Out and About program, they live with dementia. So they, you know, they need a card to remind them on a daily basis of what's happening with COVID-19. Um, otherwise, they might have, you know, lost memory about what was happening and, and so they were having a reoccurring anxiety around COVID-19 as they were, you know, um, coming to terms regularly about uh, the new news to them that COVID-19 was happening. So we were trying to lessen that anxiety and play our part in that to the people we support by sending out that information card um, so that people could could access that and um, remind themselves of uh, what they needed to be doing around, uh, you know, isolation, washing their hands and um, keeping safe. The organisation's gone through a massive transition very quickly and it's testament to the staff and board that you've been able to do it so quickly. It would cost the corporate sector a huge amount of money. How much government funding do you need to adequately cover all of this and to be able to function you know, in the way that's desirable for your clients? Yeah, look, I think that $100,000 is the gap um, currently to date um, around our programs. And, um, you know, it, it's a, you know, it's part of my job. It's my role to, to seek out that money. Um, and we do have some dialogue going on uh, with the Victorian government around, around the gaps in, in the finance, in the funding. And, um, you know, we'll continue to have those conversations and, and, you know, we've, we've made, um, reached out to different, uh, philanthropic funds and things like that to also help us and, and we await to hear back from them. Uh, yeah, it's, I think you're right. It's been, a, it's been a huge change. But really, like, I, I really can't speak highly enough of the, the staff who have come on board at such short notice to become paid workers at Switchboard, you know, interim t- paid workers, and, and really to be, like, I don't think it's exaggerating the point enough to say, that they have risked, you know, their own health and well-being to to provide this service in the sense that, you know, during the period they have, you know, had to travel on public public transport as as, as workers, um, and they have had to put themselves at a higher risk um, of the virus by by undertaking this work. And I think, you know, um, when we're clapping essential workers or you know clapping. Um, uh, doctors and nurses and people who work in hospitals, I think we also need to clap um, mental health workers like the uh, the staff at Switchboard who 
and um, the volunteers who, who call the out and about people um, weekly and sometimes, you know, many times a week to, to reassure the older people. I think, you know, the, the people at Switchboard, they, whether they're in a volunteering capacity or a paid capacity, certainly deserve, you know, a, sta- a standing round of applause as essential workers. Um, and uh, may we do that as a community when, when we're sort of out of this crisis. Um, remember the role that those people have played and I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes it's a really unseen role, um, particularly during this time when we're sort of not out, not um, as physically out. Um, we, we don't necessarily see those people travelling and, and then the, the risks that they're taking. And, you know, I, I've had some great pictures from my staff um, getting onto trains well, with their PPE on, which is um, protection equipment. Um, you know, they've had to all don masks and uh you know, run their hands dry from hand sanitizer and wipe all the door handles and do all those things. And um, they really have been absolute heroes for the work they've done. And they've had to manage their own anxiety, right, um, during this time. And um, the anxiety of of their loved ones who know that they're going out there and being at the front line of service delivery. Joe, would that $100,000 also cover out and about or do you need more funding from the federal government to enable it to, to function during this pandemic, which is going to go on for some time for our elderly population, no doubt. Yeah, um, I think $100,000 would cover all, really, um, the work that we're doing, which is incredible, which shows that, you know, I guess the smell of the oily, la- oily rag that Switchboard runs on and also that we're not asking for unreasonable amounts of money. And I guess I'd, I'd draw the listeners' attention to the fact that the federal government just recently... Um, you know, paid uh, $24 million to Headspace as an additional boost to mental health services during this time. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm sure, you know, Headspace will, will use that money wisely, but, you know, $24 million and we're sort of talking about $100,000. Um, and I think, <laughs> I think that, you know, there's a bigger question here about how we treat LGBTIQA plus organisations, both, both, both nationally and at a state level that we really don't um, fund them at the level that we do at mainstream organisations, although at times we do very similar work and play a really similar role. I mean, at Switchboard, we are a frontline suicide prevention mental health organisation for our community. And, um, you know, the people that we support either in out and about um, our older people's visiting program or on the phones you know, some of the people we support, they're not talking to anyone else but us. And, you know, cannot we must not downplay the role of, you know, Switchboard as a community-controlled organisation. And and I think there's a question of, of respect, I guess, about, around funding, um, that there's no doubt that um, there's a recognition by state and federal governments about um, how important we are, but I guess we need to have that respect backed up with, you know, with money, don't we? Um, well, that's just it. I think the rhetoric about us being a priority population under various pieces of government legislation, sometimes it doesn't translate to the dollars, does it? No, and I think it can be, you know, I think we always need a mix in the mental health sector of, like, how we fund organisations. Absolutely, LGBTIQA plus people use mainstream organisations. They use Origin, Headspace, um, uh, Beyond Blue, Lifeline, like, absolutely. But there's also a role, you know, of switchboard within there to provide an alternative to those services 
or even a complementary role to those services. Like one thing that people don't don't know about, um, and perhaps it's on me to talk about it more, but is that Lifeline and, and Beyond Blue regularly refer to Switchboard to Q Life, you know, the Q Life service. And actually, we, you know, they they tell people that you know when people come out to them um, about their gender and sexuality um, that they should call us. And that's great. That's fine um, that they refer to us. But it's kind of it's it's a lot to think about when you think that these services are you know are funded millions and millions of dollars, um, and that they're referring to us, um, which would be fine, I guess, if we had a piece of <laughs> a piece of of the funding to to recognise the role we play. That that um, these mainstream services can't always meet the needs of our community. And, um, you know, like, I mean, a, a huge aspiration for me would be like, we should be a 24 hour service. Um, the need is absolutely there. I know some listeners would absolutely agree with that, that, you know, it should be a service like, you know, currently the hours are open from 3 p.m. to midnight. That doesn't suit everybody. It doesn't suit shift workers. It doesn't shoot, suit everyone's sleeping patterns or when they are in crisis. And I think that, you know, I'd really like to look to us being, you know, a 24 hour service and we're certainly up for that as the Victorian partner in Q Life. Um, but it does mean it does mean money. Um, even with volunteers that you, you know, Lifeline is a 24 hour service, something that people may not know is that Lifeline is a, you know, is run by volunteers and it's a subcontracted model as well. And the phone lines there, you know, at a certain time, volunteers, you can't expect volunteers to work at 2 a.m. in the morning. So there are shifts that are volunteer shifts and then and then I guess um, the the early hour shifts are run by paid staff, and I think that's a model we could completely could have at Q Life. But it it takes, I guess, a brave government um, to to recognise that need um, and to and 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 to um, address it. And I think, like you know, we've heard from Scott Morrison that he wants a zero suicide target by twenty thirty. He's, he's bandied that around. Um, it was his big thing when he set up a suicide prevention uh, commissioner last year, as he said, I want to, you know, address zero suicide. I want to work towards a zero suicide target. You know, we, we shouldn't we shouldn't put a number on. No one should die from suicide. And I think if he's serious about that, if he's absolutely serious about a zero suicide tar- target, then you've got to look at a LGBTIQA plus, you know, suicide prevention strategy and that would include a 24-hour LGBTIQA plus telephone service like it would absolutely have to be a piece of the puzzle because I'm uh, tragically unfortunately too many of the suicides that make up the national suicide toll are members of our community so um, I, I can't take him seriously and unless he looks at how they're going to address suicide in LGBTIQA plus community he, he can't just say that we can access the mainstream services because no research backs that up. No research says that LGBTIQA plus communities can only be addressed um, through mainstream services and and that's enough. International research, Australian research, time and time again says that you need targeted programs to address our needs. Um, And hand-in-hand with targeted programs, you also need a policy agenda that's about removing discrimination because, of course, there's the crisis response and the that response to suicide, um, and then there's also the need you've got to get get rid of the conditions that um, play into why members of our community are unfortunately overrepresented in those statistics. So, um, 
you know, my call out to Scott Morrison is yes, suicide, yes, a zero target. Um, who doesn't want a zero target? But, um, you know, I, I, it is, I cannot take you serious. I cannot take him seriously at all. Um, until he has a, a strategy and he starts having a conversation with, you know, organizations like Switchboard, like the LGBTI Health Alliance, um, about suicide prevention nationally. Until that happens, you know, it's just it's just um it's just crocodile tears for our community. Joe Paul, thank you so much for chatting with me on 3CR. It's always a great pleasure to chat with you. Yeah, thanks very much, James. I, I love coming onto community radio. I, I feel like it's the place where you can really say, you know, you can really say everything you need to say. Um, no holes barred. You can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion. And it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, Capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. US Supreme Court has ruled that it's unlawful to discriminate against LGBTIQ people in employment. And this week I spoke with Rodney Croom from Just Equal about the significance of the decision. Uh, James, the decision by the US Supreme Court uh, to prohibit uh, workplace discrimination against uh, LGBTIQ people is um, a major step forward for LGBTIQ rights in the United States. Uh, there are quite a few states which haven't themselves prohibited that discrimination. And now we have the Supreme Court stepping in over the top of them and saying that, that across the US, um, discrimination against LGBTIQ people in employment is wrong and against the law. Um, it fulfills the promise of the Civil Rights Act 1964 that has been interpreted to include LGBTIQ people. And it means that uh, that hundreds of thousands of LGBTIQ people across the US now uh, um, feel more secure in their employment. Um, and of course, there are also implications for other countries, including Australia, when it comes to moving forward on um, uh, prohibiting LGBTIQ discrimination. Um, the two implications, I think, for this country are, are firstly that we have a federal government that at the moment wants to roll back existing uh, discrimination protections for LGBTIQ people under cover of, of, of uh, so-called religious freedom. Um, the religious discrimination bill that the federal government's put forward would actually uh, reduce the protections that LGBTIQ people currently have under uh, federal and state law. So it sends a clear, the US decision I think sends a clear message to our federal government 
um, that it should be moving to protect people further from discrimination, not watering down existing protections. Um, another thing that many people aren't aware of uh, is that in Australia, the Fair Work Act, which is the major piece of employment discrimination legislation at a federal level, uh, doesn't protect transgender and intersex people. It protects same-sex attracted people. It protects bisexual people uh, from discrimination, but it doesn't protect trans-gender-diverse uh, and intersex people. And uh, the US decision, I think, sends a clear message to our federal government that that needs to be fixed right away uh, to ensure that um, trans and intersex people are more secure in their employment. Of course, within 24 to 48 hours of the Supreme Court decision, the Trump administration made a decision that's legal to discriminate against transgender people in healthcare in the US. Uh, do you think that's going to somehow give the Morrison co- government um, some curry to continue down its religious discrimination path? It's almost as if the Trump administration and the US Supreme Court are at loggerheads on LGBTIQ reform. Uh, the, they do seem to be at loggerheads, yes. Um, the US Supreme Court judge who wrote the decision, um, Neil Gorsuch, is actually a Trump appointee. Uh, so it's clear that um, that uh, the human rights protections that exist in the US, and particularly uh, in legislation like the Civil Rights Act uh, and in the US Constitution, are still effective, despite the fact that the Trump administration is trying to undermine and override those protections. Um, And that's heartening, I think, for all of us who believe that human rights protections are important. Um, And uh, it's heartening that the White House isn't getting its way completely in these issues. But yes, the White House has been taking a lot of retrograde steps, uh, often in the name of religious freedom, um, which is pretty clearly now, I think, uh, being used as a euphemism for attacks on LGBTIQ people. Um, And so that will probably give heart to some people in the federal government at the moment, but hopefully the Supreme Court decision uh, will also um, restrain their worst instincts. And if we, uh, as we will, continue to campaign against the Religious Discrimination Act, I think it's important that we raise the US Supreme Court decision constantly to remind the federal government that the world is moving forward to greater protections from discrimination, not retreating from those benchmarks. Where is the federal government's religious discrimination legislation at? I hear it's been put on hold, but is there still work happening behind the scenes? I imagine there is on both sides and within the government. Um, yeah, uh, in a word, yes, there is. Uh, the bill... Um, was to be introduced, we understood it was to be introduced in March. Um, But obviously the pandemic got in the way. Uh, And the last public statement by the Prime Minister to the National Press Club was that uh, it hadn't been to Cabinet yet and it wasn't on the agenda at the moment. Uh, One of its strongest supporters, though, Senator Erica Betts, has said that he expects it to return later this year or early next year. So it certainly hasn't gone away. It'll be back. and uh, both, you know, advocates on both sides uh, 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 continue to to um, put forward a strong position. Now, in terms of the LGBTI community, um, uh, Just Equal, the group I'm with, also PFLAG, um, and a number of other groups have been working hard to continue to maintain the case against the bill, 
to maintain people's awareness of the fact that the bill would have a disastrous impact on discrimination protections. Um, and one way that we've highlighted that is by pointing to what the situation would be like if we had this bill during a pandemic. Because one thing the bill does is it allows health practitioners to refuse treatment uh, if they have a religious objection to that treatment. It allows faith-based religious organisations to employ staff on the basis not of their medical competence, but on the basis of their faith. Um, both of those things should be of deep concern at a, at a time of health crisis. We want people delivering health services who are the best person for the job, not who are the most pious. We want people, um, uh, health practitioners, to be delivering the necessary uh, treatments uh, for people and, and delivering unbiased and non-discriminatory health care. We don't want health practitioners being able to choose who they treat and who they don't. Um, so that's been one way for us uh, to continue to highlight the problems with this bill. You would think that the pandemic and the issues that you've just raised would highlight to the government and also to the Labor Party that it's complete folly to go down this legislative course, especially during a pandemic. Uh, are your sources telling you that there's you know, more support for just shelving it within the government than what there was a few months ago? Or is their ideology still completely in the way on this issue? Um, there's definitely more opposition to this bill than there was uh, in both major parties and in the general community. Uh, I've been pleasantly surprised uh, by how effective um, simply educating people about the bill and explaining its impacts to them um, has in terms of bringing, building up a, a movement against the bill. Um, I, for instance, I, I've been at roundtables with, with members of both major parties where they've spoken to big groups, uh, uh, in groups from um, uh, the medical professions uh, and union groups, business groups, um, legal groups, church groups, uh, about this and the unified message from all of those groups has been this bill is terrible. Um, it doesn't uh, protect religious people from discrimination in the way that, uh, that they should be protected. Instead, what it does is it rolls back existing protections for those who have been uh, traditionally vulnerable <coughs> to uh, attacks on the basis of religious dogma. And there we're talking not just about LGBTIQ people, but people with disability, women, Indigenous people, racial and religious minorities. Um, so I've been pleasantly surprised, like I said, at the extent to which uh, groups in, in civil society have um, cottoned on to how, how, how bad this bill will be and have begun to advocate against it and how that's led to growing opposition within both major parties to the bill. In the government... Um, Specifically, there is growing opposition, uh, and I've spoken to Liberal members who just who have realised that this bill is a mess um, and a real problem. Uh, whether they are influential enough to try and stop it happening is another question. Maybe they will try and amend it so it's not quite as awful. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Can you tell us who those MPs are? No. Um, because it's up to them to state their views and make their case against this bill when the time comes. You'd think the pandemic would give the governments, you know, a perfectly 
you know, face-saving reason to, to dump this legislation. And considering those concerns that you outlined, do you think that the chances of that have increased? Yeah, well, the fact that the government hasn't dumped the legislation indicates, as, as you said earlier, that there is a strong ideological commitment to it. Um, and also there's, we, we, we can't discount the, the simple political expediency that, that is operating here as well. I mean, the government feels that this is an effective wedge against the Labor Party. It, 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 it's trying to, um, to divide the Labor Party and divide the community uh, and corral its, its traditional voters. So there's, there's, there's some pretty basic political shenanigans behind this bill as well. Um, so we have those two forces, the ideological and the expedient ones, over and against those members of the coalition who are committed to the principle of non-discrimination. And their voice is certainly growing, their concern is growing. Um, like I said, I'm not sure whether they will be influential enough to stop the bill. They may be influential enough to try and uh, curtail some of its wor- uh, more damaging provisions. Rodney, on another issue, you are from Just Equal. Just Equal has called on governments around the country to uh, lift the unrealistic bans on men who have sex with men giving giving blood and replacing them with individual risk assessments. What can you tell us about that campaign? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The pandemic has uh, raised the issue of blood donation because there are a, 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 a significant number of um, donors, um, uh, people who donate consistently uh, and who are important to ensuring that our blood supply is secure, have been in so- social isolation um, and haven't been able to donate. So there has been concern about the, um, uh, about the supply of safe blood, and not just in Australia but around the world. Um, and in response to that, uh, people like me, uh, uh, Just Equal, like you said, but also groups in the US, UK and elsewhere, have been saying, well, um, it's time to consider allowing gay, uh, bisexual and transgender people to donate blood. Um, the blood authorities have responded to, the, to this issue uh, in part, uh, in, in a way, uh, in Australia and in Britain and the US and in Canada too, I think, um, the cel- existing celibacy period, uh, the period that uh, gay, bisexual and transgender people must wait between the last time they have a sex and when they can donate blood, has been reduced from 12 months to three months. Um, ostensibly, so that, that we can increase the, the supply of safe blood. But really, the, the research from overseas shows that it, that doesn't make much difference. Uh, and what would the only thing that would really make a difference is if um, we remove those bans altogether, so no longer any celibacy period um, for gay, bi, and trans people, and instead focus on individual risk assessment, as you said before. So everyone who comes in to give blood will be assessed individually for their sexual risk, uh, and whether they're at risk of acquiring or passing on a, a bloodborne disease like HIV or whatever it might be. Um, that's the uh, system that, that's been adopted in a number of other countries, um, uh, in Europe and Latin America, 
um, and in Asia. And it, in, in, in every country that's adopted that system, uh, the supply of, of blood has increased and the safety of the blood supply has increased. So it's a win-win. Um, it, the blood supply, blood donation is less discriminatory. Um, there's more safe blood available and that blood is actually safer. And the reason it's safer, of course, is that um, a system of individual um, individual donor risk assessment allows you to pick up those heterosexual donors and those cisgender donors who may not know they're at risk. They may just assume, well, there's a gay ban, so it's the gay people that they have to worry about. They don't have to worry about me. They don't understand their own risk, um, and that means that uh, that increases the possibility that they could pass on a blood-borne disease. By assessing everyone uh, for their sexual risk, then uh, we're ensuring that um, that no one waltzes in and gives blood uh, with a sense of complacency about what risk may, they may have. Um, and obviously it also means that there's an increase in blood the blood supply because you've got all these gay, bi and trans people who are very eager, uh, are very safe and very eager to give blood. And, of course, it's taking away the discriminatory element. It's looking at behaviours rather than attributes, I suppose, isn't it? In a nutshell, it, you, instead of looking at the gender of, peop, of donors' sexual partners, you're looking at the sexual risk uh, or in terms of the, the risk of acquiring blood-borne diseases in each individual. And it's a simple realignment of 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 how you're looking how you're looking at risk, but it but it's an alignment that makes sense because risk arises from sex it arises from sexual activity. It doesn't arise from the gender of your sexual partner. Um, that has always been a surrogate, if you like, way of looking at the issue. Um, that was put in place in the 1980s uh, when we knew far less about how HIV was transmitted. Um, now we know how it's transmitted. We know who's at risk. We know why they're at risk. So we should be able to put that knowledge into practice with blood donation uh, and assess everyone on the individually on the basis of their risk, not just because they're gay, bi or trans. Um, Australia's health ministers, uh, state, territory and federal, uh, will consider this proposal to reduce the celibacy period from 12 months to three months. Um, uh, that that's part of the law that they need to be they need to assent to that, um, and that's why we've been asking people to write to the health ministers. Um, over five thousand people have sent letters in to the health minister saying, "Please uh, consider the, uh, adopting individual risk assessment." Um, and we've also launched a declaration for medical professionals, doctors, nurses, and others, um, which has I th the last time I looked, I think uh, almost a hundred medical professionals that have signed on in support of the reform of blood donation. So we'll be continuing this campaign. Um, we won't let this issue rest. Uh, it's really high time that we had a far more rational and effective blood donation system. Of course, the Therapeutic Goods Administration uh, recommended governments reduce that, that wait period from 12 months to three months. It sounds like the states are going to rubber stamp that and what's required is um, an ongoing campaign. This sounds like a two-step process, doesn't it? A two-tier process to, to get them to enact the uh, individual risk assessments. Yeah, but I think that's a, a realistic view of it, James. Um, I, I'm not really expecting 
the Therapeutic Goods Administration or the federal government to suddenly go, oh, yes, let's move to individual risk assessment. Um, unfortunately, there is still... I don't want to suggest that there's prejudice um, on behalf of the TGA or the health ministers, but I think they are still afraid of prejudice in other people. They're, they're afraid that if they go to individual risk assessment, that will, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that will create a backlash. I don't think it will, you know, um, but I think that's what they fear. Uh, and so we need, as a community, to reassure them that, no, there won't be a backlash. Then, in fact, there's a large number of people who would, who really want this new policy in place, and not just LGBTIQ people, but people throughout the general community. Um, I, I do quite a lot of advocacy on this. And in recent times, since the pandemic, I really haven't come across a single person who disagrees with the idea of individual risk assessment. It's such a rational policy that it's even been adopted in the last couple of months in Poland and um, Brazil, two countries with very right-wing authoritarian governments, uh, and yet they've decided that they're going to stop banning gay men from giving blood and instead have individual risk assessment because it just makes so much sense. Um, I I think if, that if we continue to push this, uh, uh, continue to advocate for this and to show that Australians, you know, want the sensible solution. Governments will get over their fear of a backlash and hopefully do the right thing. You mentioned Poland, and of course, you have written extensively about their right wing government and the terrible impacts it's having on the LGBTIQ community. Can you tell us about what's happening in Poland towards our community? Um, Yes, I can. And I should also correct myself. I, I, I mentioned Poland before I meant Hungary. Uh, it was actually Hungary, which also has a very right-wing authoritarian government, um, which lifted the gay blood ban and, did in, and does individual risk assessment instead. But in terms of Poland, um, yes, uh, many of your listeners may have seen in the news, um, I think there was a program on Four Corners, um, about the backlash to LGBTIQ equality in that country and the way that some municipalities are enacting bans on LGBTIQ people at a municipal level, trying to create gay-free zones or, or, or whatever they're called, um, which is a, a horrifying development. Um, and uh, again, this movement is in the name of religious freedom. It's in, uh, in, in, in Poland, of course, that means uh, the, Catholic, the Catholic faith, but the, the people who push this do so by saying, well, um, ca uh, Catholics in Catholic Poles should be, should be free from having to deal with LGBTIQ people, that that's somehow an infringement on their religious freedom if they have to you know, serve them in the shop or employ them or, or whatever it might be. So Poland really demonstrates, I think, the, the path that those advocates, those people who say they support religious freedom but actually mean uh, they want to roll back protections for LGBTIQ people, it illustrates the path they wanted to, want to take us down. Um, 
that's the ultimate conclusion. And it really kind of, you know, it, 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 it's, it's shades of what happened to the Jews in Poland in the 1940s under the Nazis, isn't it? You know, Jew-free zones. Look what the, look what the next progression, look what the next step was for that. Uh, this is absolutely horrifying. Yes, it is horrifying. Um, I've, I've known... It, 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 there is an obvious comparison there to the, to the situation in World War II in Poland. I've noticed that LGBTIQ advocates in Warsaw and Krakow, they don't seem to draw that um, link as often as I might expect they would. Um, I imagine that they don't want to go straight to the Nazi argument (laughs) Um, because that is still such a sensitive issue in Poland, the persecution of Polish Jews, uh, particularly whether it was a crime that was perpetrated just by the German occupiers or by Poles as well, um, that's a vexed issue there. Uh, but regardless of the of the historical precedents, it is causing immense damage now. Um, and like I said before, I think it's a warning for all of those people who who are wondering what this movement for so-called religious freedom is taking us towards. Um, we have to be absolutely clear in Australia uh, and around the world that when some people today talk about religious freedom, some people in the religious right, they're not talking about that old noble idea that was championed, uh, particularly beginning in the Enlightenment, um, of people not being discriminated against because of their faith. That's not what they're talking about. We can all agree that People should not be discriminated against because of their faith. But what is actually being said here is religious freedom is a euphemism for uh, rolling back the legal protections uh, and uh, inclusion and social acceptance for LGBTIQ people um, and, and, and ultimately others as well who, like I said earlier, fall, fall foul of traditional religious dogma. That's what it means. And it means giving um, uh, faith and religious views, and traditional religious dogmas, privilege in the law. It's got nothing to do with, um, with freedom in the traditional sense. It's got nothing to do with human rights. It's all about giving special legal privileges to some people because of their religious views in order to persecute, discriminate against, discriminate against and mistreat others, particularly LGBTIQ people. And the sooner we wake up to that fact, the sooner we can see off this pernicious debasement of the concept of religious freedom. Rodney, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thanks, James. 3CR. Rodney Kroon there from Just Equal. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next for the Friday Rave. Don't forget the 3CR online appeal during June to keep us on air for another year. We'd really appreciate your support. Taking us out is Sarah McLaughlin with I Love You and we'll catch you next week on In Your Face.
They are also allowed to break into your phone if they have a reason to do so. And what we end up with is a surveillance state. What we end up with is multiple government agencies that have legal powers to surveil you when you have not been proven guilty. The underlying tenet of Western law is that you are innocent until proven guilty. What we're moving to is suspicion is enough to take away rights in order to build a case towards guilt. And that's not a legal framework that we agreed to. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 